Hello, everyone. Welcome to Genealogy Adventures. My name is Brian Sheffy. And I'm Donya Williams. I look so short. <laughs> we're in the studio today, guys. So, you know, we're trying to beat this COVID and get past all this stuff and everything. So we're in the studio today. Hey. Mm -hmm. And you're feeling short, and I was hoping people wouldn't see my shorts, because normally the video is... Oh, yeah. <laughs> We are normally hidden behind We're the normally desk. hidden. So, yeah, this is a whole new thing. We haven't been here. Um, but this is still great. I like what they've done. And, you know, just to let you guys know, our studio is actually a museum. It is. And um, it's a, a museum dedicated to hip-hop. Mm -hmm. So, old-school hip-hop. So, I'm there. That's me. <laughs> That's my year. That's my time. Um, but... So when you what you're looking at is the old school hip hop video. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, paraphernalia. Paraphernalia. Yes. Thank you. Or uh, memorabilia. I think that's, yeah, that's a better. That's, that's a better, a better one. one. Yeah, because yeah. he has some really great stuff. So if you're <laughs> ever in DC, definitely come to Listen Vision Studio mm -hmm. Georgia at Avenue. Georgia Avenue, right across the street from Howard University. Check out the hip hop museum. It is awesome, it especially is. if you're a hip hop head like me. <laughs> so as always, thank you for sharing your Sunday with us for the next hour. And we have a wonderful, wonderful guest today. Her name is Katrina Kiefer. She is an author, an adjunct professor at Trent University in Canada. She is a cultural historian with a specialism in identity, body marking, and sla um, slavery. And she's also a contributor in the studies and the history of the African diaspora. So welcome to the show, Katrina. So excited to have you on. Very excited. Thank you so much. <laughs> So for those of you who don't know what we're going to be talking about today, it is we're talking about slavery-related records that still exist in Africa. Um, it was a revelation to me when I, when I came across it, and really, really, I'm just so grateful that I, I can't even remember the article that it was, Katrina, but you had been interviewed in it, you were talking about the work that you were doing in Sierra Leone. I phoned Donnie and I said, we have to get her on the show. Yes. We, we have to. Yes. So I'm sharing this with a lot of groups. So I'm sorry, y'all see all of this. Like, this is so, I'm sorry. But I'm sharing this with the groups so we can get some more people mm -hmm. on and just really, because this is some information that really needs to be known. It does. So Katrina, considering that, you know, your research is based, you know, your research base is in Canada, how did you even get in, get involved or, or interested in researching um, something that was so African-centric? Yes. That is a great question. I'm going to have to bring it, like, shorten it because I could probably go on for about three hours here. <laughs> um, so long story short, um, I've always been fascinated in why people do the things that they do, how people position themselves within the communities that they position themselves. So this was kind of my broad basis for interest. And when I was a master's student, uh, I picked up a certain gentleman's book, which was W.E.B. Du Bois, dark water voices from within the veil. And I'd never wept while reading a book to the same degree that I, I wept when I read that book. Um, I, without, a, without any question, his prose fundamentally changed how I saw myself, how I positioned myself in relation to the world. And I suddenly became aware of, of a whole continent that quite frankly, my own education system had never let me be aware of. And this is something that I hear over and over and over again in the classrooms in Canada is my students, now that I'm from speaking from a place of privilege and speaking from a place of knowledge, and I can share my knowledge with my students, 
so many students are almost outraged when they realize how little they know. And so I even describe it now that, you know, in everybody's mind, for the most part, there's this big question mark, the shape of a continent. And if I can help illuminate that even a little bit, then I feel like I'm doing my job and I'm doing something that matters to me deeply. So from Du Bois, um, I was, I just started to read and it was voracious. I couldn't stop reading. I wanted to know everything I could possibly know, um, which of course no one human can do. Um, but I was very lucky enough to have a Southern Africanist um, as my mentor at the time, Tim Stapleton. And he actually guided me. And when I said, look, I need to do more, I want to learn more. He said, well, there's, there's people you should work with. And one of the names he gave me was Paul Lovejoy, who is the Canada Research Chair for the African Diaspora um, and is just a staggeringly accomplished scholar. Um, and so I went out to York University, which is luckily enough about two hours from where I live. And I commuted every day for about eight years. And I worked, I was fortunate enough to work with Lovejoy. And he, the very first year that I was working for him, informed me that I would be presenting at a conference in Cameroon. I'd never been to the continent. I had no idea what to expect. And he threw me into the deep end and um, I never looked back. So it's been, it's been quite a journey. But if you'd told me 20 years ago that this is where I'd be, I think I would have been, I would have thought you were on something. <laughs> But now I can't imagine doing anything else. I, I love it. Because part of what I really find fascinating about the work that you're doing and the, the research that you've done is you spend a lot of time understanding tribal markings or um, you know, the, the, the body marking and the body art that a lot of the different ethnic groups in Africa actually used and, and still use. And, you're say, and you've said that that has actually helped you when you were reading documents and I guess people's physical descriptions were given, which included their markings. Am I, am I understanding that correct? Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it, it all came about because Lovejoy was describing, it was one of these moments. Um, Lovejoy in a grad seminar was talking about ways that he uh, understood people as being like unto other people. And he was studying the salt trade at the time. And he asked his informant, this was in Northern Nigeria, he asked his informant, well, how do you know that guy over there? And the guy looked at him, apparently, and gestured at his face where they had the same marks. And when Lovejoy said that in the class, it sort of struck me because I realized one of the things that we've been really struggling with in this, in this history is how do we find out where people are from? If, some, if an enslaved person has been renamed multiple times, they've been carried far from home, how do you know where they're from? And sometimes they may not even be aware of how far they've journeyed based on how many different trips they may have taken. There, there's a lot of confusion inherent in this and they're probably pretty unhappy throughout. So I kept thinking about this. And then I started to think about my friends. I'm an old goth. I used to be a goth in the nineties. So wow. you know, that was my thing. <laughs> and I had a lot of friends with a lot of body art. <laughs> And so I started to think about how that body art positioned them within their goth community and how we wear the marks that place us in the communities, whether, we, whether we're given those marks as children, as in the case of things like circumcision, which may relate to religious association and affiliation, or whether those of us who are wearing these things in our ears because we were raised in the global north as women, you know, yeah, there's something else that is a marker of identity that some of us didn't have a choice about, some of us did. 
And so I started to think a lot about this and I started to read a lot of anthropological literature. And it occurred to me that this was the thing we needed because if an enslaved person is wearing a mark specific to their ethnic group or their home village, or it references past events in their life that are specific to a geographic region, then it doesn't matter how many times they got renamed. It doesn't matter how far from home they are because we know where home is. We just have to know how to read that language that's written on their faces. Because actually your work prompted something like a realization in me. You think about all of the kind of um, escaped slave ads that we've read. Right. And they say that they had, that they were African and they had scars. Scars. And yes. I, and I just assumed that they had scars from the work that they did, you know, through the manual labor, working right. with the machinery that they had. Right. It never occurred to me that, that it's what she just said. That it was tribal. So I'm going to tell you something right now. I'm standing up because this is going to hurt my back. Okay. But <laughs> <laughs> I just got to stand up. I feel really. Yeah. So I'm standing up today, guys. Unless you want to swap seats. Nope. Because this is, this is, no. I'm so, good. As long as you can hear me, everything's good. That was, um, that was just such a revelatory moment for me. Because again, when we're reading those kind of escaped slave ads, that is something that we see over and over and over again. Right. And, and it, it's, it's just amazing to me, the, the, the research that you're doing, it never even dawned on me that records were in Africa. How about that one? Me too. Yeah. See, I didn't even I didn't even recognize that records were actually still in Africa. I thought that any if records were here, they anywhere, they would be where they came in at. It never dawned on me, and I almost feel stupid because that has to happen. You 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 got to have your records at the beginning, and mm-hmm. then your records at the end. But it never dawned on me about the records at the beginning and where they were. And I guess my assumption was that most of them would have been destroyed when those African nations got, you know, fought for and gained right. their, their liberation. Right. I thought the Europeans, you know, the, the British and the French and the Germans and the, and the Dutch being punitive would have burnt right. that. So the fact that anything exists is, is, is amazing. Is amazing. Is amazing. But before, because um, I know you have a question, before we get to that one, is there a book or a resource that you can recommend that kind of outlines, I guess, the traditional body marking and body art that different ethnic groups in Africa used? Not yet. I'm working on it. Oh. Um, <laughs> there's one She's of the things that <laughs> I'm literally working on. It. Um, it's one of these things where it's again, you know what? Honestly, Danya, don't feel don't feel stupid because I feel stupid about this constantly. Where And I think most of my colleagues have had these kind of moments of, oh my gosh, right, I forgot about that. Because we've all, apparently everyone's been talking about body marking and scarification and all these records, and no one had ever thought, um, until I came along and had this crazy notion, that maybe what we should do is we should put all of those records together and then run it through algorithms similar to what you'd have with Facebook facial recognition systems, teach the algorithm to be able to read those marks because no one human can do it. And then boom, you've got something where not, you know, not only have you built the decoder ring, but you can actively decode. So you could look at a re- at a runaway slave ad. And if you have enough detail on the so-called country marks that they would often describe, you know, what you can then do. And if there's loads of drawings and paintings as well, is you can actually run those through the machine learning that we've been building which we're training on scar patterns from West Africa. 
And in theory, and so far in practice, you can actually cross-reference and immediately say, well, I know exactly where this person came from, which is, is thrilling to me. It's really exciting because I did it by hand for, for a while. And you can kind of mentally plug in CSI music because it took me about two years <laughs> for, for two scars. <laughs> um, so I had to go through, because this is the crazy thing is so many anthropologists, and this is, this is where we can use colonialism against itself, which I love, like repurpose and harness and, and take that documentation and do something good with it. Um, you would actually find anthropologists were like, ooh, those are strange. I'm gonna other those, I'm gonna exoticize those. I'm gonna draw those. And then they leave these nice drawings and I'm like, ooh, thank you. I've got your drawings. And then you can add that to the big database. Wow. That is awesome. That whole thing. I mean, it's just everything that you're saying is just it's over the top. So how did you, do I want to ask that now? How did you actually, <laughs> yeah, I mean, how did, what, what made you do this type of research and then just on another question, how did you actually, um, I mean, how can we know what markings are there on our family members that we might need to look forward to, to be able to try to find them, to understand where they came from? Great question. So part of that, and this is where we're still building a lot of the puzzle pieces together. Um, where we can find marks, what we know about marking is that marking happened in Africa um, it tended not to get not to happen once it was in the Americas. So when people bearing marks came to the Americas, they were often forced into relationships with people from different socioethnic groups. So marking someone as per a given origin wouldn't make sense. Um, and also those marks, as you've seen with the runaway slave ads, they make you very identifiable if you want to escape your situation. So people tended not to reproduce those marks. What that means for our purposes is that when you see someone with a mark on them, that means they're from Africa. So they're a first generation person. So if you can trace back to that point, and the nice thing is because, again, we have to kind of use the inhumanity of the system against itself to find the human roots and to find and understand the humans. Um, because to a slave owner, their enslaved humans were like, and I, I apologize for even saying this because it genuinely sickens me when I work it, but they saw them as livestock and they put them, they read, so they kept really good records because they saw them as livestock. So they wrote those down on their livestock, bills of sales. You can find those in estate papers from Jamaica. You can find those in sale ads, manumission ads. You can find them in, uh, birth certificates, death certificates. So these, these documents are, there's actually a staggering amount of documents. And because to the slave owners, those marks allowed them to identify people, they were very good about keeping track of them. So if you can, if you can trace your lineage back to a given estate or to a given plantation or to a given place where you can find that first generation ancestor, and that's a challenge for sure, no question. But if you can find that first generation ancestor, more likely than not, they will have a described scar upon them. And if they do, we can start to understand where they came from. We can get either a broad sense, because some scars are replicated. So, you know, sometimes you'll see three marks down each cheek. That tends to be a Yoruba mark from Southern Nigeria, but 
you there's still enough characteristics that are shared that we can still isolate it down to regions. And in some cases, we can be incredibly specific. So I was able to isolate one individual down to um, roughly a 12 mile, sort of a triangle of 12 miles between three villages. So that was, and that was probably the most thrilling experience ever to be able to do that. So, so, okay. What if you come across like with, with a lot of us, we're Mm -hmm. like just getting, we're finding our African connection through via DNA and for my mom, for example, my mom matched a particular group who was from Africa, but they actually thought they were the first generation to come over. Whereas they actually matched my mom as a third cousin. How can you, is there anything that we can do to like try to figure out who that actual first generation African was? Because they have no idea. They actually thought they were the first generation to come over. And unfortunately, that's where we are limited because we have to follow oral histories to a point. We've got to listen to our parents and our parents' parents. And sometimes the lines get twisted or the, the signal gets broken. Um, so we can do our best. Like right now, I'm, I'm searching for, um, there's a couple of good friends of mine. And they're actually First Nations. So that's what we call it in Canada, Native Americans in America. But, and this is another interesting story we don't hear a lot about. A lot of enslaved Africans ran away to the First Nations or the Native American peoples. And so there's a lot of people who trace their descendants, or sorry, trace their ancestries back to Africa. So I have a very good friend who's Anishinaabe, and she's very secure in her indigenous heritage, but she also knows that her great-grandfather was a runaway slave. And she desperately wants to understand that connection. She desperately wants to know where, where is he from? How do we get, how do I connect with him? So her family's managed to trace that back to a plantation in Alabama. And the next step, and of course, COVID kind of wrecked everything on this, but the next step would be to see if that plantation's records are are in any archive, because if they kept records of their slaves, then ideally, if you can trace it far enough back, you can follow that line. Because again, if you're looking at people during a time when people were commodities, it was in the best interests of the slave owners to keep very good track of their commodities, which means that the records are actually quite good. If they survived, you can follow the records. But there's always, with every kind of tracing of history, there's always a whole lot of stumbling blocks and moments where occasionally it can be a bit of a challenge, but it's a start. That's how I see it. (laughs) So in terms of records that still exist in Africa, which, I guess, which repository or which archive of material are you, I guess, the most familiar with? Sure. So I'm most familiar with the archives which are held at the Sierra Leone Public Archives. Um, Sierra Leone is near and dear to my heart um, as a nation, best best nation. Sorry, I mean, I didn't say that loud. Don't, don't hate me, don't hate me. Um, it's a fantastic nation. But you'll find records in almost every nation. Um, there are so many, like Angola. If I, if I was a Lusophone, my friends who are Portuguese speakers have sent me photographs of the archives there. And there's just, they go all the way back to the 1500s. Like they're insane. They're genuinely insane. No one's gone through all of them. Um, so I work most often in, in Sierra Leone, which is a very, for those who don't know, it's a small country on the sort of the, the bulgy bit of West Africa, right near the edge. 
And Sierra Leone has a long connection with America and also with Canada, which many Canadians don't know. Um, Sierra Leone was settled by Nova Scotians. And so there's an interesting connection there, but also enslaved people were being taken from Sierra Leone primarily to uh, Charleston to work. And of course we know about the Gullah Geechee connection there. Um, so I work with a set of registers which were generated um, starting in 1808 and they were generated from 1808 to 1862. They include about 100,000 names and entries. And the way that these things were created was during the period of abolition, um, the, the West African, or it's the British Royal West Africa Squadron, which was part of the British Royal Navy, was literally just capturing any ship it could. And you can conjure up Pirates of the Caribbean in your minds of like ships chasing each other at sea, because these were very daring do escapades at sea. But unlike you might see painted by abolitionist literature, they weren't very pleasant for the enslaved who were then dragged inside the ships, their sla these slave ships, the, the enslaved were dragged into Freetown Harbor where then everybody argued over who got to keep the ship. And so they had these big court trials and the whole time the court trial was happening, that ship stayed in the harbor with the people still on board which is sickening and speaking as a sometimes borderline claustrophobe is pretty awful to think about. But if those people survived, they were then taken out of the ship and the British duly registered them. They gave everybody a number. They wrote down their names, which are not always accurate um, because the British didn't always understand what they were hearing. They wrote down their gender. They guessed at their age. They wrote down their height. And then for my purposes, they wrote down these elaborate descriptive columns in which they describe um, anything that they thought was out of the ordinary. So you have um, really baffling descriptions like cut on left side by sword, cut on right side by same sword. Like, how does that work? Yeah. I don't understand that. Um, so there's a story there. And it's maddening that we don't have more of these stories, but we've got glimpses. We've got little, little flickering windows. Um, and they drew the scars that people had, which is really, really helpful. Um, sometimes they identified people who were children of other people who were on those ships. So that's a connection that we can start to understand. Um, we can look through, you know, uh, there's one, there's one register entry that I, I still am completely baffled about. The individual that they took off the ship has a Portuguese name. So, okay. And his description is a white man. What? Right? Okay. Like, are we talking an albino? Are we talking a random Portuguese guy who was chained below decks? Like, I really have no idea what we're, what we're even looking at here. And so this is where the, the registers are both fascinating and really madness-inducing. <laughs> oh, sounds... Okay. <laughs> it sounds like research. It sounds like genealogy, so yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> and when yeah. it comes to the, to the actual ship records, I mean, are people... Do people have names, or are they just grouped by gender, by, by age brackets? I mean... What, can, what could a person actually expect to, to see from the, from the slavery records? So from the slavery records, it really depends on the data set, honestly. Um, if you're looking at the registers of liberated Africans, you have everyone is grouped by ship and you have names. Um, if I can, am I allowed to share screen? 
Um, yeah, we can make that happen. Actually, I'm glad you said that because someone else asked a, a question, so that will fit right in. Yeah, we can make that happen. <laughs> Give us a second. Because I've, I've got one of the registers up and I can just show you what it even looks like so that can help people to visualize it and to understand what they're looking at. Oh, I have to do that, don't I? Oh, shoot. Okay, give me a second. <laughs> I just realized it. All good. Uh, share. No. Make hosts. Okay, there you go. Okay, so I will show you on screen two. This is one of the registers of liberated Africans here. And so if we zoom in a little bit, what I can show you we have here is it says the recaptive number, and then we have names, and these can be quite hard to read. Um, so, Duaru, Kome, Kong, Bai, uh, we have sex, here it's man, ditto, 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 boy, age, and these would be guesses. The British actually guessed based on height. I mean, corresponding people's own individual regions way of keeping track of birth dates and the British, very challenging. We have stature, so four foot 11, four foot 10, four foot nine and a half, four foot yeah. 10. And then we have descriptions. And this one says, uh, prominent navel, two scars, right knee. One ditto top of, what is that? Broad feet. So he's got big feet. Um, large navel, scar left wrist, and below left breast. Uh, ditto right groin. Scar right nipple, ditto breast, faint ditto right thigh, and scar left groin. So what we have is these types of things. Here's the individual that I told you that I managed to find uh, where he came from in Northern Nigeria. Um, re Recapped of 5959 Kando. Pockmarked, large scar, top and back, right shoulder. And he has this drawing on each side of his eye. And that drawing actually identifies him as belonging to the Hausa ethnic group. That particular scar is called Uku Uku, which means three, three. And it's typically found between, between Zinder and Tesawa in southern Niger, northern Nigeria. So I'm kind of, because these descriptions are really detailed and they're I kind mean, of, and they're really. just describing pretty intimate parts of people's Yes, anatomy. yes. I just get the feeling yeah. like they were there with a magnifying glass looking over every millimeter of someone's Which skin. is what you saw when they came over. They, they would examine them and say, hey, lift this, do that you know, um, left to the, you know, just something, turn around, spread, you know, yeah. just, you know, those types of things. That's what that sounds like they actually did. They goes, went from, from one, from head to toe, like, like really you would, figuring out. Like you would with livestock. If you were checking out a horse exactly. or a cow. Oh my God. That, that's you just said you livestock. Do. That just hurt me. Like that just put me in a whole nother. Wow. Yeah. You know, it took a lot from, it takes a lot for me to get annoyed. Mm. And that just annoyed me. It annoyed me. That <laughs> <laughs> yeah. just and, annoyed me. Whoa. And I'm so glad that you guys identified that because that's one of the other things that I think is really, really important that we not buy into abolitionist propaganda because even though they did a good thing with abolition, there was a lot of white paternalism that was part of that. And a lot of these abolitionists were former slave traders themselves who, you know, come to God and now didn't want to be slave traders, Whoa. but 
what are we seeing here? We're seeing objectification. We're still seeing people being registered in a way that is not really okay. So say that part again where you said the abolitionists came to God, because that's like me just asking them to say it loud enough for the people in the back. (laughs) For sure. A lot of these these abolitionists, like uh, I'll stop sharing now. Um, A lot of these abolitionists, people like Alexander Falconbridge, who in 1791 recruited settlers to come to Freetown, he was a former slave trader. A lot of them were. And they were... They decided for reasons that we may never be entirely sure on. Maybe they truly did have a conversion process. I mean, let's not forget who wrote Amazing Grace, former slave trader, turned abolitionist. You know, we have people who did have these great moments where they recognized that the choices that they'd made at that point and to that point were the wrong choices. So we have to recognize forgiveness there. But at the same time, one of the things that's really ugly about these these registers Yes, they're useful if we want to try and understand people's ancestry and their genealogy and their origins. But what a lot of these registry entries are for is because those people were being apprenticed locally. And what I mean when I say apprenticed is they were being re-enslaved. So you get a 14-year apprenticeship. What are we looking at here? I don't think they're being paid. And so there's a certain element where we have to we have to approach history. We can't approach it with rose-colored glasses, and we have to sort of see where these um, these documents are really extraordinary, but they're often generated not always in the spirit that we might hope that they were generated in. And in terms of the Sierra Leone collection that you're working with, how much of that has actually been digitized and is available online? That was the question I was going to. <laughs> so if you want to read it in the original. You can go to the British Library's Endangered Archives program. Um, Most, if not all, has been digitized to British Library standards. It is completely free, and that is thanks to the hard work of Paul Lovejoy, my former supervisor, and Suzanne Schwartz from the University of Worcester in in England. They've done an amazing job. Um, I will also tell you that, because I need to to brag about my amazing students, because I'm really proud of them, My students, I gave them this terrible task this summer, and I said, I'd like you guys to learn how to read early 19th century handwriting, which is a bit of a challenge. (laughs) And um, what they produced for me looks something like this. These are the same registers. So what we have here is we have a transcribed Excel sheet, and these students work day in and day out. Um, I am astonished. But this makes it readable for everybody. That is awesome. That is awesome. So, Brian, do you have any more questions? Because they are flooding. Like, there is some really great (laughs) questions up here. And um, one was asking about manifests. I'm trying to go. She said, can you speak about manifests? Sure. So, ship manifests, um, in the context that I generally run into them, hang on, my cat is about to fall off the desk i think my cat just woke up she's been asleep in the sun behind my monitor and there's a she's very clumsy and it's entirely possible she's going to fall off the desk so uh okay i think i've readjusted her anyway um ship manifests in the context that i've been working with them in um i also study branding i don't just study scarification i've just received a very big award that i'm allowed to now talk about 
um, to do another whole type of research, which is related to this one. And it speaks to reparations and it speaks to social justice, things that I, I get very excited about. So one of the things I kept running into in these registers is I kept seeing drawings of brands on people's bodies. And I was like, whose initials are those? Who did that? Who's, who, whose initials are those? And no one could tell me. And I was like, well, that's dumb. We should have a master list of every single brand that was registered officially because they all would have been registered officially. We need to know who's responsible for each one of those brandings because to brand a human being is to commodify them. It is to dehumanize in the most explicit and violent way. And so we are now beginning to put that together. I have a team which includes some really fabulous scholars from around the world, one of whom is Ana Lucia Araujo, who's from Howard University, right across the street from your studio. Um, And what they're, basically what we're trying to do is we want to build a full list of brands from Portugal, brands from Brazil, brands across the way. If someone put their brand and their mark on a human being, we want to know whose brand that is. And then we can really open the, the, the floodgates to questions of reparations because, man, some of the people today who are ultra rich, their ancestors got that money by trading and the suffering of others. And that's not okay. Not when people are still suffering. So, okay. Um, before I get to this next question, because what this says to me right now, one of the things that I know that you have some who fight against slavery, I'll say. They'll come out their mouth and they'll say, oh, but you guys enslaved yourselves. That's not what you're saying. Well, what I'm saying when it comes to enslavement is slavery is complicated, firstly. There is not a single continent on this planet except for Antarctica. You never know what the penguins have been up to. Um, (laughs) There is not a single continent that has not seen people enslaving each other. There is not a single ethnic group of humans who have not enslaved or been enslaved by others. Slavery is literally as old as humanity. What makes the transatlantic slave trade unique is it was the first time that people enslaved others on a mass scale purely based on the color of their skin. So what you're seeing there is you're seeing there was a pre-existing African slave trade. There was also a pre-existing European slave trade. There were were slave trades everywhere. But what ends up happening is that Europeans, as they're trading for other goods in Africa, they recognize they can also purchase humans. And this was in the 16th century. And when they started to do that, they started to see profits and they started to turn this into a system. They systematized exploitation on a scale no one has ever done. And the branding is emblematic of that. So we don't see brands in previous slave societies, not often. Like the Romans, who we all know had scads of slaves, they almost never branded anybody because in almost every other slave society, African slave societies included, if you enslaved someone, there were usually ways for them to be freed. There were ways for that person to be freed and to become a full citizen, whether that was through manumission in a formal sense, whether it was because you ended up giving birth to your master's child, that was in another sense. These were all pathways to freedom. And once you were free, you were free, period. There was no mark on your body that specifically said that you had been enslaved. Brands changed that. And what we see in the transatlantic slave trade is a system where the color of your skin is stigmatized 
once you're in the Americas, you have to prove you're not a slave if you're a person of color. And that is entirely new. That is the, the great crime against humanity that the UN declared in 2011. So yes, Africans certainly enslaved each other. So did Europeans, so did everybody else. What Europeans did to Africans was they commodified them on a scale that had never been seen before. So the next question was, um, is there, do you have pictures? Can you, can you show us some markings or? Yeah, absolutely. Totally. (laughs) Do I have pictures? Of course I have pictures. (laughs) Um, Let me find you my big folder of pictures because I have a lot of them. Um, So what we have, let me see, here's some of the earliest. So here is the earliest set of drawings. This is from, let me confirm my dates. This is from Barbeau. This was published in 1678. So here is an early marking. So here's some drawings of markings. Oh my heart. Now, if we go back and we look at modern day markings, um, one of the things we can do, so these are This is from an anthropologist. You can see some of the marks on the side there. And let me see. I've got to go through all of my scads of pictures. Um, So we have Yoruba patterns. So from the 1890s, uh, Samuel Johnson was himself Yoruba, and he included a portion on patterns in his 1890 book on the history of Yoruba. So these marks are unique to the Yoruba and they designate, they define um, what family you come from. Can you make that a little bigger? Of course. Hey, Afiba, can you, can you make that a little bigger on your end? Cause see, this is us. We, we have Yoruba. Mm. So this, this is amazing. Like I'm, you have me ready to cry in here. Like serious. I have, let me tell you something. My research, I prepared myself so well for my research that I really feel like, and I've said this to you before, that I feel like my ancestors was like, no, you a little bit too prepared. And I'm going to have to show you other stuff because I didn't get mad when I found enslaved people. I didn't get mad when I learned that my great, great grandmother's grandfather was her. Thanks. They, oh, that's perfect. Um, I didn't get mad when I learned that my great, great grandfather, I mean, my great, great grandmother's grandfather was, that was her grandfather and that he sold her children. I didn't get angry like most African-Americans do when they find out about their families and when they see the things that they see and learn it. I didn't get that anger, but like right now you can see the water, like I'm ready to cry. This is crazy. Because the... Actually, it's really good that you showed it the way that you did because this, you know, this is a sketch that someone's imagining because they just want to demonstrate what the markings looked like. Those first photographs, those first images that you showed, those were people's portraits. Those were real those people. Those were real those people. Those were real people. Yep. There's a lot of others. Um, I'll show you. There's, this is where the, the Brazilian side of things comes in. Um, I think it's from here that I want. Is it from here? Gosh, I have so much of this stuff. Um, Hang on. See if I can remember it. Is it? 
So we have patterns by, um, what is the name? There's, oh, I'm, I'm blanking on a fellow's name. Okay, well, um, what you're looking for, I, I was just going to say, I will never wrap my head around the thought process and the, how people go to bed at night. Yeah, how, how, how could you, how could you actually go to put your head on a pillow and go to sleep? I'm telling you, Katrina is the first person to make me feel like this. Like this is literally the first time I've ever felt, I've ever felt this. Like I'm ready to cry. <laughs> this is crazy. I got that when I was working with the Slave Voyages website. Yes, I got it then. <laughs> but this is like a whole other level because you're you're seeing real people. Yep. That were sketched as oddities. Oh, not because, you know, not, you know, if they had been Irish, you would have said they were celebrating their Celtic identity with the, the Celtic body art. But because they were black and they had dark skin and body art, it was exotic. Yeah. Yes. That's the bit look that kills this. me. Look at the, those. Look at, look at this. It's beautiful. Look at this. And this, is, this is the terrible puzzle for me is and again this is where i'm i'm so i'm obsessed with why the people did the things that they did and part of it is i had i had a period of time where i was reading about this stuff when i was a grad student and i really wrestled with ideas of good and evil because i thought either everybody who was involved in the slave trade was objectively evil by any metric um, to see the suffering of other human beings on this scale in which case that's a lot of people that's not a very good statement about humanity. And then I thought about things like today's CEOs. No offense to any CEOs listening, um, but maybe a little bit of offense. A little, who cares? <laughs> because <laughs> the thing I think about is if you, can, if you can justify the suffering of other people in the name of profit, no matter what the context is, whether that's Amazon and making your employees have to use the washroom into little bottles just to make their quotas, Whatever that may be, if you can justify human suffering so that you make money, then in my books, that is what slave traders are. It's the same exact principle where you can turn a blind eye to the pain of other people and say, I'm making money. And so when I have students who come into my class and they want a simple story, they want to hear about white guy's bad, black guy's good, or black guy's bad, whatever the story is, they always want it to be simple. And eventually what I try and help them to understand is that greed is bad, period. It when you, when you prioritize, it I get ranty, sorry. No, that's awesome. No, I mean, I'm just agreeing with you and it doesn't matter who it comes from. Greed is bad. Yeah. God. And that to me, that's the key because when you can look at anybody and you can see not the beauty of another human being that you want to you want to get to know and be friends with. Um, there's another one here by Actually, I remember the first time I did see markings. And sorry for all the Generation Zs that are tuning in and listening. It was the British. It was the British performer Seal. Seal yes, has, Seal had his markings. markings. He does. Yeah. Look at look, Jesus. These are, these are paintings that were done in Brazil, in Rio de Janeiro, of people who had just arrived who were from Mozambique. So, you know, I'm really intrigued about what each one of these cultures and ethnicities in Africa, 
what they were trying to convey through their body markings. What what cultural thing I'm just, were they I'm, were they trying to represent? And the fact, because now I'm wondering, you know, there were people were arriving from similar countries in like Brazil and the Americas and, and the, the Caribbean. You know, were the markings from the same ethnic groups that expressed in the same way in all of those places? Yeah. And this is this is kind of the interesting thing because those marks, um, if you can read the marks then you can really, you can read someone's entire life because markings are done for different reasons. So usually facial markings are applied uh, in infancy as a general rule, and they're usually applied to define you as belonging to a certain um, ethno-linguistic group. So, you know, the people that speak a certain language and live in a certain region, those are going to be the marks that you're going to see on the face. Body marks are a different story most of the time. They, and they tell the story of the individual life. And that can be really remarkable. So with a lot of women, for instance, in the Ganda people in Cameroon, as you go through your first menstruation, when you bury your first child, different marks are applied to your body at different times through the trajectory of your life. And those record your experiences for you to always remember them. Okay. So, so go ahead. That's, no, go ahead. That's powerful. I'm just, I'm, 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 so in a ship manifest, is mm -hmm. body markings, is that something that would have been noted for the, the captured people on the ships? Not typically on the manifests. What you find on the manifests, and I apologize again because this is, this is some pretty nasty stuff. Um, what you typically find is brands are mentioned. And the brands are mentioned explicitly so that if people die on the voyage, the person whose brand that is can collect insurance money. Of course. Yeah. Because so, people suck. <laughs> so the markings, and I know what I'm getting ready to say, it may, you know, it may make y'all laugh a little bit, but it's actually true. On Black Panther, when, mm -hmm. um, you know what I'm talking about, when, when. I sure do. Ma, what, what's his name? When Michael Jordan, Michael B. Jordan's character and he showed yep. every mark oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. on his body. It was for a that was mm. him telling his story mm -hmm. of what he did and how many kills he actually had. They researched this and they found that. This they is, sure did. This is what they found. That, that yeah. is actually the Hamar markings, and I don't have them in a separate folder here. But if I do a quick, well, let's just see if I have any. Um, the Hamar markings, um, which Lars Krutek actually did. I'll find it here for you because you're. People who are following along can then find it as well. Uh, Lars Krutek is a phenomenal anthropologist who studies markings. And one of the, one of the things, oops, there it is. Um, so the Hamar people keep track of kills based on patterns um, and lines, just like that character you were describing. So yes, they got it right. Sorry so each, each line represents a, a dead man. So if you can read the marks, you can read someone's entire life story effectively and their, their trajectory. Look at that. That's it. That's it right there. So the, the objection I would have to Black Panther is less that they got the marks wrong, because they didn't. They got the marks right. It's just that a lot of the time they kind of blended everything together. And, you know, you see Ghanaian Akan um, 
kente cloth mixed with other things mixed with other things. So I feel that that made me slightly grumpy, but that's just a small thing. I mean, so there's so many questions. There are like, I can't even get to the questions <laughs> because <laughs> there are so many. You have like, oh my God, go ahead, Brian. I just don't, I'm. I'm <laughs> well, just because I know we drifted a little bit away from the, the kind of ship records, but I'm getting a sense mm-hmm. that everyone's really into what we're talking about. This makes African naming conventions, once they're enslaved, make even more, more sense, sense than they did. Because if you can't mark yourself, for the reasons that the Katrina Zach brilliantly outlined in the in the show, you can do the same thing, but do it through names. Like the Gullah Geechee. They're, they're just, as soon as I see names like January, March, Sonny, Bina, Tina. That's done. And they're anywhere in that South Carolina, Georgia, Florida region, I immediately know that they're Gullah. And can almost, based on their name, you can almost get a sense of the ethnic people that they came from because they preserve that knowledge. So, Sorry, you just gave me another epiphany about I mean, uh, kind of African American African American history. Yeah, and how they named their people. That's why, why that was they, the way they they did it that way to mark them because they couldn't mark them the other physically. Way. They yeah. couldn't mark them physically. So this is what that was. I mean, this is this is just amazing. This is just amazing. So a lot of I'm beginning to understand a lot more. I mean, we understand it already that the choices that our ancestors made. And the way that they chose to express themselves through how they dressed, what they named their kids, what they named themselves, the foods that they cooked, was to preserve everything else that had been stripped from them. Mm-hmm. Wow. And it speaks to their strength. And that, to me, is, is the most important part, um, is to think of the strength and the courage and the resilience that it takes to find ways to keep your culture to find ways to preserve and to ensure that your culture passes down from generation to generation, you know, is, is, it's so extraordinary. And I feel like as someone who is descended from the culture that did the things that were so terrible, that there's an obligation on me as uh, a settler and as, you know, the, the person that I am to both speak to this, to do the work to educate because it's not fair that that be on the, the descendants of those who are enslaved, that they always have to be re-traumatized and tell these stories again and again. That's not okay. That's, that's on me to teach other white people how to understand these, these traumas and these horrible histories, but also the strength and to celebrate the strength of the people who survived the Middle Passage. You know, that's I, I believe firmly that the only way that we're going to get out of uh, the place of... of social injustice and racial injustice is more white people need to do the work and more white people need to learn this stuff and to learn what happened and how to do better. And to whatever degree we can, we have to find ways collectively to restore the pathways and find ways to look back to the identities of the people who had identities forcibly taken from them. It's going to be a hard route for the United States because half this country is trying to outlaw actually teaching anything related to critical, anything. critical race yeah. theory. Anything. So. Um, but we're four minutes out. You have made Donya speechless. And that's hard to do. That is hard to do. That's an accomplishment. You have done something. You have done something. 
I just want to ask a really quick question, though. <clears throat> what percentage ballpark figure, if you can give one, of African slavery records do you think is has been digitized? Great question. Um, I don't, I can't give you that big a number because my gut feeling, if I had to guess, I would say maybe 30 to 40% if I had to guess. Mm -hmm. um, but the work is ongoing and it's really important, particularly for, for African Americans and for American listeners to remember that there's also Brazil. And Brazil saw 4.5 or 5.5 million people enslaved and transported there of whom unfortunately not all survived that journey. And there is amazing work being done in Brazil by fantastic scholars. Uh, I have a colleague, Alder Rodriguez, who was really inspired by my work on scarification. He's just taking it in an extraordinary direction. Um, it's really cool. He's just doing amazing stuff. So there is a lot of work. There is a lot of digitization. And because I don't speak Portuguese, I'm not, all, I'm not actually aware how much is being done in Brazil. Um, I hope a lot, but I, and I feel like a lot's being done there more continually needs to be done. There's not enough that's been done in Angola and so much more needs to be done there. And East Africa is a whole other story as well because there's a whole lot of the trade that was happening there. It's, it's just, it's, it's ever ongoing, but that's part of the, the need. So there's this desperate need to digitize, preserve, understand, transcribe, understand. So I actually want to donate money to projects like that, preservation and digitization. Are you aware of any projects that the public can donate to? That is also a great question. Um, I can look that up and get back to you on it. Um, typically, most of the people I work with, we usually work from grants. Um, we apply for academic grants pretty much all the time. <laughs> and then we go ahead and we do things, we work as hard as we can to work from those grants. I will also look into um, one of the things that's desperately, and I know we're, we're a little tight on time, but one of the things that's desperately important is to preserve the original documents. Mm -hmm. So for example, in Freetown, Sierra Leone, the, publics, the public archives there are held in a building which has intermittent power, uh, a broken window, there's dust, there's no climate control. So these records, it's not only important to digitize the records, but it's also really important to preserve the original records so that people can see them in the future. Um, I know there was a, an organization that was looking at building a whole new building for the, the archives in Sierra Leone. And unfortunately, I think possibly due to COVID that fell through, but I will get back to you on that. And that's a promise. Thank you very much. And when we find out, Donnie and I will definitely let you guys in the audience know, you know, know what that is. Yeah, well, I just want to thank you for coming in. Um, you made me cry. You made me speechless because I've been sitting here doing like this. You, you just really, yeah, um, I've never had that happen to me before. And I just really want to thank you for coming in. And we, you have people who are waiting for your book. There have been <laughs> comments up here actually saying when that book comes out, it's going to be a bestseller. And, <laughs> yes, and, do, do, and do let us know because we will share that link with the and audience. Not only that, we would like for you to come back. Yes, absolutely. I, it would be my honor to come back, and I'm so very, very grateful that you guys invited me. It's it's a privilege. Thank yeah, you. We we are very. And if you find something else beforehand, you can call us, let us know, and you can come back. Like <laughs> <laughs> this is just this is some of the most amazing. And from this is, I think this probably might be one of our best shows. 
I mean, because I've never had anything like I'm good God. Any of. So unfortunately, we are out of time. Yeah. Um, Katrina, thank you again so much for five more minutes. Five more minutes. Oh, okay. We have five. Because we, <laughs> we started minutes. a little late. All right. Right. Because <laughs> right. we started a little late. So I want to be able to tell everybody what's for next week's show. Mm-hmm. Next week, we actually have two shows. Um, everybody was asking when we talked to, to the the uh, retired chief, retired chief, Ralph Godby and online people were like, Hey, this wasn't long enough. This week we need to go further. Same thing they said about your show. As a matter of fact. But, um, we will be talking to him again and we're going to be talking to him on Saturday. So it's going to be a different kind of back or different format, but we're going to be talking to him on Saturday. Um, so look out for that. And then on Sunday, we'll be back with listen vision live. And we're going to be talking about old, how, Fake news can wreck your research. So look out for that. We want you guys to come on through. We actually was talking on um, Augs, and we want to thank Augs because I know um, Yaya is online. Mm -hmm. Thank you for doing what you did yesterday. It was an awesome, awesome show, Um, and we enjoyed that. And we just want to talk about these things again. Why did that turn up? Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, that's where we are. So, any any last question? Seeing as how we have another three or four minutes. No. Um, anything else you want to share for the next three, four minutes? Because, I, I mean, you have me, you <laughs> literally have me speechless. Like, I've dropped a tear or two over here. It's just, <laughs> it's not, it's so undonia-like. You know, <laughs> well, well again, for, for us, this is really important. <clears throat> Because, again, as Donia was saying, you know, we get, I'm not going to say attacked, we get challenged by people who, here in America, and these are other fellow African-American and black people who refuse to believe that slavery happened. They say the whole thing is a lie, slave ships never happened, slavery never happens, all that kind of stuff. And it really upsets us because we have deeds, we have wills, estate inventories that lists our enslaved ancestors. Right. Um, and you're coming at it from the, from the actual origin part. Um, I, would, I would strongly encourage anyone who doesn't believe it to book a ticket, fly to Freetown, book a ticket with, with Visit Sierra Leone, which is a fantastic travel site I've relied on for years. Um, go up the river, about 15 kilometers up the river, you're going to find Bunce Island. And I've been to Bunce Island more than a few times. And Bunce Island was the site of a slave fort from about the 1600s. It finally kind of petered out in about 1807. And Bunce Island, there's a slave yard that remains to this day. And you can see where the Europeans looked down. You can read where Anna Maria Falkenbridge ate dinner and she looked down at the slave yard and commented on what she saw. Mm. And in a way that is, I think, speaks pretty harshly about how white feminism has often left black and brown women in the dirt. She turned her back. She didn't comment on what was happening. She didn't criticize it. She didn't have any issues with it. And despite being the wife of an abolitionist, her solution was to turn her chair so that she didn't have to look down at the slave yard because it upset her. And Please follow that's... the genealogy adventures page and then you can also see some of the um, some of the comments 
and if you you know feel free to answer if you would like or whatever but thank you so much oh you're so welcome and i i'm quite serious when i say that you know you guys should really go to freetown i'll have to I'd love to see you be able to hold those registers in your hands and flip through them. Oh, God, I'd be a mess. <laughs> well, especially as Henry Lauren, these are all slave importers that I'm currently researching with the big research team, considering Henry Lawrence, John, you know, John Bull, the Middletons, Sierra Leone. I mean, the Sierra Leone was never the main place that they were bringing Africans from, but they brought hundreds of Africans right. from there. But it sounds as though that was much earlier than the period that you're talking about, because these were like revolutionary, revolutionary war era people. So like, you know, starting from the 1750s, 1760s up to the, the American Revolution. So for me to be able to find those ledgers, oh, my God, that, that would just be huge. I'm just not any good anymore, so... I can I can send you um, some material that was digitized from the UK National Archives on the Royal Africa Company Bunce Island uh, charts. Thank you. Wow. Yeah. No. Thank you so much for that. So oh, now we're out of time. <laughs> <laughs> so again, Katrina, such a big warm thank you for for your generosity and dropping your knowledge. Our our the comments are still kind of pouring through. They are. They really are. <laughs> Um, as always, thank you everyone who's watching us on whatever device you're watching us on for sharing this last hour with us. My name is Brian. I'm Donya, and um, just enjoy your Sunday and replay this if you missed part of it because this fire. This, this is, is fire. yeah, this is fire. Just replay it. So thanks. Goodbye. All right. Take care. Bye bye. <laughs>